Let me read to you Mark 4 from verse 21. It says that he said to them, this is the first parable, he said, Is a lamp brought in to be put under a basket or under a bed and not on a stand? For nothing is hidden except to be made manifest, nor is anything secret except to come to light. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. And he said to them, pay attention to what you hear. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you, and still more will be added to you. For to the one who has, more will be given, and from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And he said, the kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how. The earth produces by itself first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear, But when the grain is ripe at once, he puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. And he said, with what can we compare the kingdom of God? Or what parable shall we use for it? It's like a grain of mustard seed, which when sown on the ground is the smallest of all the seeds on earth. Yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. With many such parables, he spoke the word to them. As they were able to hear it, he did not speak to them without a parable, but privately to his own disciples. He explained everything. Jesus is putting across to us an image of the Christian faith, which in many ways clashes with the image that our culture has of what Christianity is and has become, particularly in the Western world. I think that Christianity has largely become what many would perceive as a spent force in the Western world. That most of your images of the Christian faith now, if you, if you spend any time traveling through the towns and villages of the United Kingdom, you'll discover lots of um, beautiful, beautiful buildings, which are essentially relics of a bygone age. Uh, there may be some activity in them. There may be some, uh, some interest, some kind of social aspect. Uh, there may be some kind of faith being taught there. Sometimes it's Christianity, if we're lucky. And uh, all kinds of uh, quaint images that go with that. The beautiful daffodils in the gardens around the church and the cricket lawn next door and the pub across the road. And um, this is a very common sight. And what it largely looks like is is almost like museum pieces to an age gone that's gone by and a spent force of what Christianity uh, maybe used to be in its heyday, but no longer, there's no longer an expectation of any power or of any authority or of any potential for life change in that faith and no real expectation of advance or of progress or forward momentum or of any interest in this thing growing. It's more or less surviving and hanging on, I suppose. And uh, in many ways, Christians themselves are the ones who are responsible for the image which is being put across because uh, Christians have fostered a very, um, a very nice image, I would say, uh, thinking that niceness is equal to godliness and not necessarily maintaining the priorities of the Lord Jesus Christ himself or the expectations or ambitions that he voiced and which he lived out in his own life and ministry. And uh, I want to ask you when you read parables like this, what image do you have of Jesus? Because it may be the case that upon first reading, uh, you would see him as very much voicing and embodying that exact same picture that I've been describing. He uses these 
gardening metaphors, you know, and of, of seed and soils. And he talks about domestic appliances like lamps. And it can all seem very quaint on the surface of things. And Jesus can very much fit the picture of a non-threatening uh, faith which has no real force, no power, and no, uh, no urgency to it in the world in which we live. But what I want you to see is that actually, when you understand the things that he's saying here, you realize that he's using uh, veiled language, understated language, for what is, in fact, a, something like a kingdom manifesto that is predictive and promise of, of a promissory nature in terms of what he expected of the present and future reality of the kingdom which he had inaugurated, which he had begun. What I mean by that is that he is not talking here of something um, meek and, uh, and, uh, and non-threatening, but rather something which had global implications. And we will begin to see as we open up what these parables are about, that there is something very bold, very confrontational about what he is describing here in terms of the future of the movement which he had begun. And of course that must, if you understand that rightly, it's going to have uh, very strong practical implications for your own life. Uh, many people um, fail to see, I think, the life-dominating relevance of the gospel that Jesus preached and how it trickles down into your day-to-day lived experience and emotional, psychological life. And what we begin to see here, when we understand these parables rightly, is that Jesus is, is making very, very strong claims on the centrality of himself, of the Christian faith, of its global ambitions, and of your part within that, I, I suppose, as well. There's a little bit of application where he turns to the hearers. He says, pay attention to what you hear. He says, with the measure you use, it will be measured to you, and still more will be added to you. For to the one who has, more will be given from the one who has not. Even what he has will be taken away. And there's a sense in which what he's saying is this. He's saying, in view of the things I'm telling you about this kingdom, it is on you to respond right or lose everything. And therefore, I think there's an an enormous sense of urgency to, to grapple with the weight of what Jesus was preaching. I think one of the greatest sicknesses of Christianity in the West, and I've said this before, and I think it's so vital that we grasp this, is that many people view the Christian faith as something like an appendage, something that can be attached onto your Christian life, and, or onto your life, I should say, where your life is about, in the majority, about many other things, and the Christian faith can be sort of added on, almost as an afterthought or like an appendix to your, to your daily lived experience. And I think revival of spirituality is when people understand how all-encompassing it is to believe in Jesus, how utterly he wants to dominate your love, your imagination, your purpose, why you're here, who you are, what he's calling you to do, what the future looks like, and indeed what you are to look forward to in eternity. So 
Here's what I want to do. I want to just offer you an explanation of what I think the parables are about to begin with. And we'll just work our way through the three of them just to lay out a brief explanation of what they mean. Because I think the first thing you've got to ask yourself is, well, have I even understood what he's saying here? And then I want us to think about whether the things he's predicting, because these all have a future promise aspect to them, whether these things were true, whether the parables uh, relate to reality as it's unfolded in the years since Jesus said these words. And then we'll try and come to some applications and some ways that this, I think this makes a difference to your day-to-day experience of what it means to be a Christian. So let's, let's just work our way through the parables to begin with. What is Jesus talking about? The first one says, he says this, he asks a question, is a lamp brought in to be put under a basket or under a bed and not on a stand, but nothing is hidden except to be made manifest, nor is anything secret except to come to light. Now, already we're struck by how absolutely bland and innocuous the language is here. Jesus is speaking about Ordinary household lamps, the most common archaeological object which you dig up if you're in Israel. They look like little teapots. You pour oil in them, and they have a little spout out of which a wick would come and light up the house. And this is not the kind of rhetoric which is likely to set the world on fire. Um, you, know, when, you know, many people are familiar with, with the spe- great speeches in English history. You just have to say a line like this to an English person, we will fight them on the beaches. And immediately our hackles are up. We feel a sense of the bulldog spirit being roused as we're ready to take up our rifles and bayonets and go and fight whoever they are on the beaches. I don't, who are we fighting? We don't know, but we just want to go and fight. And there's certain language which stimulates and, and, and fires you up. And when Jesus uses language like a parable of a lamp being brought in, it certainly doesn't seem on first glance to be particularly world-shaking. However... Did you notice how he said, after this first parable, he says, if anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. In other words, he's saying, pay careful attention. And if you listen closely to the things he's saying, what you discover is, especially if you, uh, like his contemporaries, were brought up reading the Hebrew scriptures uh, from being little children, they would have understood that when Jesus is using the picture of a lamp, he's using a very pregnant metaphor which is there in the Old Testament and speaks of a number of things. First of all, the image of the lamp spoke of God himself. There's a verse in 2 Samuel that says, "You, For you are my lamp, O Yahweh. Speaks of God himself. The lamp also spoke of the coming Messiah, the promised Messiah, and of the whole reality of his rule. There's a couple of verses that speak of this, and here's one of them in Psalm 132. It says, There I'll make a horn to sprout for David. David is shorthand for David's future rule and line through the Messianic line. I'll make a horn to sprout for David. I prepared a lamp for my anointed. An image of David's rule that won't be snuffed out. It speaks of God. It speaks of the Messiah. It also speaks of the Word of God. Very famous verse in the longest psalm in the Bible. Your word, it says, is a lamp unto my feet and a light to my path. So, think about this for a moment. By the way, when Jesus initially, when he spoke this, in the original original Greek, it doesn't say, is a lamp brought in. It rather personifies the lamp. It says, does a lamp come in in order to be put under a basket? So immediately, you've got this idea that the lamp is almost like a person. Does the lamp come in order to be hidden? Who's the person? 
Obviously, Jesus is describing his, himself here. He's speaking of somebody who embodies all of this, the weightiness of being divine, of being messianic, and of course, of uh, being the revelation of God, the word of God in human flesh. And he's saying this about himself. He's saying, I've not come in order to remain obscure. I've not come to just preach to a few people and be forgotten. Jesus is making claims about the purpose of his arrival and the Father's intention to make him known in the earth. He's saying, I've arrived. I am much more than you realize. And I'm here to be seen. That's the first parable. Then he tells us another one. He said, the kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how. The earth produces by itself first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. But when the grain is ripe, at once he puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. Now, this second parable very much fits in its place after the first one. The first one is about his own arrival. The second one is about the movement which he has begun with his arrival. And I want to ask you a question. If you had it in your mind to begin, initiate a global movement, or let's be more modest about this, even just a movement that would have national or city-wide impact. If you wanted to be a world changer in any kind of sense, like let's say you had a cause, like nuclear disarmament or something like that, how would you go about it? What would you need to have in place? I suggest you'd need a large following, first of all, You need to gather more and more people who are interested in your cause. You would probably need as much time as possible to gather momentum with the cause that you are interested in. Because generally speaking, people have to to fight for a cause for decades even to be heard on anything like a public platform. You would want to establish, thirdly, institutions and organizations to embody the cause which you're fighting for and which would outlive you. You would, fourthly, want to raise lots and lots of cash because cash is necessary in order to have a public voice or to be noticed on the public sphere. Any presidential election on the other side of the pond will tell you that, that often it's the wealthiest who are, who are, who are, who are most likely to be in the, front, in, in, in the front-running positions. And also, then, you'd want to write down a body of work. You want something that, that articulates what you believe in uh, as perfectly as possible so that and so your words can go beyond you. And of course, in our day and age, it's not impossible to imagine that you could, write, you could go home this evening and write something down, and it could be read by somebody in Russia or Japan or, or Singapore or anywhere within, within minutes. Um, it, it, that's actually very much possible to, to accomplish. Now, Jesus is talking here about the nature of the movement he has started. And one of the things you've got to notice straight away is that none of those things, which I would take as being just basic, common sense, necessary precursors to the the possibility of starting a movement which would impact the world, none of those things are true of the movement Jesus has started. As he's speaking, he does not have a large following. And in fact, by the time he, he, he is crucified, there is still not a large following. He doesn't have much time. There's only going to be... a you know, 18 months or so until he's crucified from when he speaks here. He, has no, built, he builds no institutions, no organizations to embody and carry on the work. He has very little cash. 
They're often seen living on the generosity of others uh, moment by moment, day by day. And he never writes a single thing down. And I look at this, and on the surface of it, you think this is just pure incompetence. You know, that he's, he's speaking about starting a global world-changing movement, and he does none of the things that are necessary in order to accomplish that. And yet he says, this thing's going to grow. And the word he uses, he says that um, the farmer sleeps and rises night and day. The, sp- the seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how. He says the earth produces by itself. And it's a word, automate, from which we get automatically, by itself, he says, this thing is going to grow. In other words, it it doesn't need any organization. It doesn't need any control from the top. And this is, of course, true, especially of the early church. It was so disorganized. You read the New Testament, most of the New Testament exists because it was so disorganized. And they're all writing letters to each other trying to fix what's going on as fires are starting all over the place, as it were. There is, there's no money. There's no advertising. There's no nothing. It's just, it's just the word of God. It's just the message. And the message has just got this multiplying effect. And it's like a dark horse, I suppose. You know that expression, a dark horse, the one that no one expects to win, that comes from the back of the pack and rushes through to win the thing. So Jesus, is, he's, first of all, he said, listen, note this about me. I'm here to be seen. And, and, and these, are, these are the truths about me. I'm God, I'm the Messiah, and I'm the word of God revealed. Then he says, this movement that I'm, about, that I'm starting, which looks like nothing to all you who are listening to me right now, this thing is going to grow all by itself. It looks unimpressive. It looks disorganized. It looks weak. Just Watch. Then he tells us a third story, which takes us even further on. It links again with the the progression of the three stories. He says, with what can we compare the kingdom of God? Or what parable shall we use for it? It's like a grain of mustard seed, which when sown on the ground is the smallest of all the seeds on earth. Yet when it's sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. Now here he's talking about this movement, which he calls his kingdom, and its future destiny. What would happen in the long term to this movement? And he acknowledges to begin with how small and absolutely pitiful things looked as he's speaking. He says it's like a mustard seed. You ever bought a jar of French mustard uh, with the little seeds in it? That's what we're talking about here, tiny and he says, and he's not, this isn't false humility. It's just fact. I mean, this thing at the time, he barely had the 12 disciples and a few other people interested in what he was speaking about. At moments he had crowds, but the crowds just as quickly dissolved. This was not very impressive what was happening at the time. It was mustard seed-like. But, he says, this thing is going to grow. And not just, listen, these These are not modest words he's using. When he's talking about the growth of this thing to become a tree, which will spread out its branches so that the birds of the air will find nest in those branches. Again, he says, what he's doing is he's referencing various Old Testament passages which speak of empires 
as great trees and small lesser nations as birds which find refuge in the branches of those trees. For example, in Ezekiel 31, it talks about Assyria, a great empire at the time. It says it describes it as a great cedar tree. It says all the birds of the heavens made their nests in its boughs. You ever read the book of Daniel? Daniel taken into the heart of the Babylonian Empire, Nebuchadnezzar being the emperor of that empire. Nebuchadnezzar has a dream in which he sees a great tree with, nerds, with uh, birds, not nerds, birds in its, in, nesting in its branches. Um, <laughs> the nerds are the one who, who teach us these things today. Um, And it's a picture, it's an image of Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom and rule because he was the most powerful man on earth and the birds represented all the little lesser nations all around having refuge within the great Babylonian empire. Now, does that cast a slightly different slight on the stories? When Jesus says, the thing I'm starting is like a tiny seed in the garden. Wait and watch. This is going to be the biggest thing the world has ever seen. He really is saying that. Now, that is an explanation of the parables. Now, I want us to ask this question. Was he right? Do you believe that what he said and described as future predictions is accurate in a portrayal of not only of himself, but also of what followed in the centuries after Christ? Now, I want you to think about your advantage here in asking that question. If you had been a hearer in the crowd who had heard Jesus teach this day. And if you'd rightly understood the kinds of things he was saying, because you knew your Old Testament, you knew what the analogies meant, you knew the illusions that he was drawing on, what the lamp represented, what a tree represented, what the birds represent, and you understand what, exactly what he's saying, I think you would have been forgiven for thinking this man is utterly mad. A total megalomaniac. Because you think about what it's like in our day and age. When we hear men and women, even those in the top levels of power, making predictions and promises about the future, even when they're the most powerful people in the world, we take their predictions and promises with a pinch of salt, don't we? When a man says that he's going to build a wall and order the country next door to build it, then you, 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 kind of, you kind of stand there and think, well, we'll see what happens there. Or when somebody says that they're going to see a deal through by the end of March, no, no, by June, no, but let's say by October, then you're kind of, at some point, you just lose faith, don't you, in the promises and predictions. And these people, these people are the most powerful people on earth right now. Now, Jesus is nothing. He's not nothing, but he's nothing in the eyes of those listening to him in one sense. And he's talking about a global empire. It sounds crazy, doesn't it? Now think back on each of these parables. Ask yourself first about the lamp. Has Jesus gained a place of prominence that justifies what he's saying here, that he came to be put on display? Because I would argue that Jesus, in fact, I think it's beyond doubt that Jesus is the most recognized name in the history of the world. If nothing else is true of him, you have to acknowledge that he's like a lamp put on a stand for everyone to see, and his fame is not diminishing, it's growing with every passing year. 
Think about the growth of the movement. The picture of the seed just being scattered on the ground and then the man just stepping back and just watching what happens. I told you, the history of the early church is one of chaotic disorganization. The organization only really kicked in in about the 4th century when things became a little bit more official within the Roman Empire. But until then, the exponential growth that the church experienced was entirely by itself, to use Jesus' term. He preached the word, he disappeared off the scene, and within a few centuries, the whole known world was transformed by the things that he'd said and taught. This is against all odds. This is when the early Christians were often very poor. They were frequently experiencing persecution and setback wherever they went. They were, as I said, chaotically disorganized. And yet, yet, the movement grew and continues to grow in this exact way by itself. It's an extraordinary thing, isn't it, when you think about it? There's no power in control forcing this thing forward. It just is the potency of the message. And then think about the third parable. Jesus said this would become the biggest tree in the garden. I want to ask you, when you look at the world today and you consider global movements, philosophies, worldviews, and religions, which of these could be called the biggest tree in the garden? Which of them also is the most widespread? Which tree has branches that spread across the entire globe? You know, when you look at uh, world religions, one of the things that you, you will notice if you can see a map which plots these things out and shows you, like a heat map that shows you the concentration of belief in different parts of the world. All the other major world religions have very strong uh, loci where they are focused. You'll find Hinduism concentrated in South Asia. You'll find Buddhism in Southeast Asia. You'll find uh, Islam concentrated across a certain band across North Africa and through the Middle East and into Central Asia. Christianity is not like that. Christianity has an almost even spread across the entire globe. And I just want you to look at these parables in view of the cold, hard facts and ask yourself the question, was Jesus right? And it seems to me he could not have articulated in so few words a more accurate description of not only of himself but also of the movement he would start and its end of what it would become in the future than in these three brief pictures. Now what does this mean for you? I want to show you a few liberating and life-changing truths that this means for us when we wrestle with the reality of what Jesus is talking about here. Here's the first. It means you can be worshipful and not self-absorbed. What I mean is this. Most of our problems in life, I think, spring from the reality that we are so often focused on, our, on ourselves. We're so introspective. We're so turned in on our own desires and ambitions and insecurities and all these things. And the smaller our world becomes, usually the more unpleasant people we become and also the more miserable we become, right? 
I had um, a grandmother who died 15 to 20 years ago. And in the last sort of five to 10 years of her life, actually probably longer than that, she became increasingly immobile. Um, And as a result, her world shrank because she very rarely could leave the house. I mean, she, she had a small bungalow and her whole existence was moving between uh, two rooms, basically, and watching television. And uh, it's sad, I, I grant you, but we loved it to bits. But one of the things that we, expe- we experienced when we go and visit her was that she had an amazing ability to talk about her life. You know, her life involved almost nothing. Nothing was happening. I mean, it's two rooms. How interesting can that be? Yet she could talk and talk and talk and talk about, and ask not a single question about us and the things we're doing or anything like that. And this is, this, I think it's a really apt picture of what can be true of many of us, actually. That the smaller our world is, in terms of a global story, global context, the smaller our world is, the more it narrows in on you and the things you're doing and you're interested in, the short span of your life, or just maybe of the next couple of years or even shorter than that, the smaller your world is, the the more miserable you you are, the more self-absorbed, the more insecure and unhealthy you are on so many levels. But what, what... What it does, for me at least, and what it does, I think, for us, when we understand, when we read parables like this, and also when we put them in the context of an entire book, which is essentially a story, which tells us about God's history at work in the world, what it does for us is it tells us that the world is not about, your life is not about you. It essentially reorients the entire purpose of life and of your own story around somebody else, and that person is Jesus. Jesus says, he is the lamp come to be put on display for all people to look at him, not for us to look at one another or indeed at ourselves. And actually, that is entirely in harmony with what the Bible says. When you read the Bible and try and understand the purposes and the heart of the Father through Scripture, one thing rings out above all, which is this, that the the Father's greatest priority, the end, I think, for which he created the world, was for the glory of his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is what it's all about. I think about passages like this one in Isaiah 9, the famous passage we read at Christmas time, where it says, To us a child is born, to us a son is given. Such sweet, delightful words, right? And then it says, And the government shall be upon his shoulders. And he shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And then he he goes on, he says, Of the increase of his government and of his peace, there will be no end. In other words, this thing is not only going to grow, it will not stop growing. That's the Father's intention for Jesus, for his Son, and and for history. I think also of a passage like this one, which was referenced in the worship time. Now in Philippians 2, after Paul describes the ascent, the descent of Jesus from his place at the Father's right hand, down, taking upon flesh, his humility in taking flesh, and then the humility in going further down to the point of death on the cross, and how he, he did that in order to serve us. But then it's like a, there's, an, there's a reverse trajectory that takes place when Paul then says, Therefore God has highly exalted him. 
and bestowed on him the name that's above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Again, over in Colossians 1, when Paul's describing the preeminence of Jesus as the image of the invisible God. He goes on to say that he is before all things and in him all things hold together. And he's the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. If there's one thing that God is focused upon above all other things, it's that the Lord Jesus Christ should have his place of preeminence within the creation that was made for his glory. In Revelation, we get more and more of this. In fact, if there's one thing that summarizes the message of the book of Revelation, it's this. The Lord Jesus Christ reigns and rules. Chapter 5, it says, Worthy are you to take the scroll to open its seals, for you were slain. By your blood you ransom people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. You've made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Speaking of global rule and authority through Jesus in his people in Revelation 11. It says, And the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever. What I'm trying to help you to see, friends, is this. Our world, your life, your existence is not designed to be turned in. On itself. Absorbed in, in just the small things. It's not that God doesn't care about the small things of day-to-day life. He absolutely does. But I think you find great liberty and great freedom and great joy when your heart and your mind and your focus is turned outwards. From being self-absorbed to becoming a worshipper of Jesus. Most of our problems would find a resolution, I believe, if we learned to worship. To put him at the center. We're free from the exhausting effort to try and make something of our own lives. And free and liberated for a worship that is living under the light of Christ's glory. He's the lamp. He says elsewhere in John 8, I'm the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, will have the light of life. What does it mean to live under the light of the Lord Jesus Christ? It means you're turned out from yourself, from gazing down, from looking down at your feet and at your problems, and you're lifted up to gaze at his light. When you understand what Jesus is saying about him and himself and his preeminence, it turns you from self-absorption to worship. Here's the second thing. It turns you from, it, it, it means you can be purposeful and not dithering. I think many people experience deep anxiety and uncertainty in their life around the question of purpose. Like, what are we here to do? And it seems to be a problem that's become increasingly and acutely forceful for our generation because you do have the opportunity to do virtually anything that you want to do, right? If you decided you wanted to go and dig wells in a nation, that's absolutely something within your power. You could be there within six months. If you decided you wanted to go and uh, make millions of pounds, I think most of you could do it if you set your mind to it. If you decided, some of you are raising an eyebrow, you're like, really? Wow. (laughs) If you decided, I never thought of that. Yeah, I think it's genuinely possible if you have enough focus and you sacrifice enough. If you decided you wanted to go and study the whale song, 
in the Pacific Ocean. And, and you, absolutely, it's within the realm of possibility that you could do whatever you wanted, almost. Almost, not quite, but almost. And this seems actually to create all kinds of problems in terms of our insecurity and uncertainty. Because if we have such a plethora of options, we're even more uncertain about what we should be doing with our lives. It's not like we've been foisted with meaning from another generation or with purpose or with a sense of what we're here to do or a sense of our place. We're actually told, create your own destiny. And it seems to me to lead to more dithering about than ever. Even when someone looks purposeful on the surface, actually you dig around in their heart and they're still not sure if they're meant to be doing what they're doing. What Jesus does here, when he describes, he charts for us basically a a history from his moment on of what he plans to do in this world. And it seems to me that 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 is a compelling vision that can capture you up within purposes that are greater than you. It's not necessarily that the entirety of your life and time and energy and resources have to be directed to to, to what you would think of as direct work in God's kingdom but rather that everything you do in your day-to-day life is infused with meaning because you know that it's within a grand picture of what God is working out through his plans, through his purposes. It's like that idea of being the person who works on just one little section of the Bayer tapestry, a little bit of sewing in a little corner somewhere, and you think, well, you don't see it within the bigger picture until you step back, look at the other side, and you see the whole story laid out before you. That's what it's like to understand what Jesus is describing here. He's describing the whole tapestry of history and your eternal purposes within that. And you see your place within God's plan and his promises It absolutely infuses your day-to-day life with a sense of dignity, with a weightiness. You know that word gravitas, it means like a heaviness. You can feel heaviness even in the seemingly mundane acts of day-to-day life when done for the glory of, of the Lord. I think how vacuous life is if you take away this narrative, you take away this idea that God has a story that he's working out. If there's no one in control, if there's no one who's working out plans and purposes, then where is it all going? It's going nowhere. And it will all just end in a great big heat death. So you might as well give up, right? But when you see what Christ is doing, that he had a plan that's being worked out even from before the beginning of time, that gives you dignity in your day-to-day life. Purpose instead of dithering. You can be peaceful, a third thing, instead of being harried. Again, I think the, the problem of anxiety is deeply epidemic in our world, isn't it? And you know, a lot of people are spending a lot of time and energy trying to figure out why that is the case. And uh, you know, all kinds of explanations can be pulled out for this. We can talk about uh, the problems of loneliness in a world where we're increasingly disconnected from one another. We can talk about long hours at work. We can talk about romantic insecurity in a day and an age when you are less likely than ever to find a life partner to settle down with. We can talk about the problems of social media and how it exacerbates our deepest insecurities. And, but I, I actually think that none of that offers us a complete explanation And that the real reason why we're seeing widespread, deep anxiety in people's day-to-day lived experience is because of what I would call cosmic insecurity. That we have lost a sense of the God over us who is a father to us. And we are essentially a generation of orphans without the security and safety of knowing 
that God is there, that he loves us, that he's working out his purposes in this world. But for the Christian, when you, when you begin to understand that the Father has such a plan, that he is there, and that you are living within it, that, that frees you from the anxieties of living a harried, rushed, anxious existence and puts you within this, that relaxed place of knowing that God is working out a plan that cannot be thwarted. I love the image of the, the farmer in the second parable where it says that he scatters the seed and it says he sleeps and rises night and day and the seed sprouts and grows. Now, I'm not advocating a passive approach to life. But there is a sense in which I think a Christian has a holy relaxation. I think Jesus was relaxed. I don't think he was anxiously rushing around. And the, you ask yourself the question, why was Jesus relaxed? Because he knew that God was going to work out his plans in the world. When you read accounts like this, you understand that God has the end planned out from the beginning. It absolutely transforms your sense of whether God's in control of your day-to-day momentary experience of life. I mean, if God is in control, then he's empowering all things to the end to which he's purposed them. And the negative side to that is just to say, you're not in control. You're not in control. So stop fretting. Stop it. I think, last of all, allowing these parables to sit with us means that you can be optimistic instead of pessimistic. There is undoubtedly a growing sense of panic and, and despair in the world at large about the future. And it seems justified, doesn't it? We've got, we've got um, you know, Scandinavian schoolgirls telling us that, that we're all going to die because of climate change. And we've got David Attenborough describing humans as a pest, essentially, on planet Earth. Then we've got predictions about you know, how we're going to have um, gene editing, where they'll mix animal genes with human genes and end up with weird creatures that have come out of that. And then the transhumanistic movement, where your consciousness will be put into computers. If you guys didn't know any of this stuff, I'm sorry for confronting you with reality, but... Uh, <laughs> This is actually pretty terrifying stuff if you spend any time thinking about it. And people are very, very worried about the way the world's going and particularly about uh, malevolent powers with technology and, and, you know, no real moral compass to guide the way they use that technology. And it is a scary age. But I don't think a Christian is a pessimistic person. Simply because you know the big picture. With the parables that Jesus is telling here, where he's describing this, his arrival, the growth, and the ultimate triumph of the kingdom which he had inaugurated, it all comes out of the prophetic promises of the Old Testament. Ones like this in Isaiah 2. It says, It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains. This is describing, by the way, friends, a future that I think we have yet to arrive at. He's saying, he's speaking of, of, of uh, the kingdom which, which Christ would rule over as using the metaphors as a mountain. He's saying, This one will be taller than all the other mountains. 
He says, it shall be lifted up above the hills, and all the nations shall flow to it. This is entirely upside down, isn't it? If you think about it, rivers flow away from mountains. And what he's describing here is a supernatural streaming of peoples and nations and tribes and languages gathering to, moving towards the great mountain that is Christ and his rule and authority. He says, so many people shall come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, that we we may walk in his paths. Friend, I don't know if you're someone who gives way to fear and panic and pessimism about the future. But what I'm trying to tell you and what I think Jesus was teaching us is that God has it in control. He has good purposes that he is working out in the world. And a Christian basically is someone with a positive, optimistic outlook. I'm not talking here about a kind of personality change. If you're, you know, if you're someone who's given to pessimism, I feel you. If you're someone who's a melancholic by nature, I feel you. I have your sympathy. But we're not talking about a personality transplant where you just suddenly become American overnight. What we're, what we're, talking, about, what we're talking about here... What we're talking about is a settled, deep belief and conviction that the Father, who so far has vindicated every word of what Jesus said here, is going to bring all things together toward the end which he purposed, that his Son will be glorified, that his mountain will be the highest mountain, that his tree will be the tree in which all the birds of the air find their rest and their their refuge And you're part of that. You are part of that. So be happy. Part of what I've been trying to say to you is is about reforming your imagination. We all believe narratives all the time that shape how we experience our day-to-day lives. And Christians need to put themselves within a story which utterly changes the direction of your life, which is the story God has written and not the one that you would imbibe from the culture around you. It may be the case that even as we take communion, you need to repent of believing the wrong things and the ways that has impacted your day-to-day life. It may also be the case that some of you are not Christian, and I don't know whether the things I've described to you are appealing or off-putting. In a sense, that's not the point. The point is whether it's true or not. But it may be the case that in wrestling with this, you suddenly realize, wow, this is a pretty phenomenal thing. That a man from an obscure part of the world, with nothing apparently going for him, described the start of a global movement that has, in fact, panned out exactly as he said, and which seems to be moving towards the ends which he described. And the invitation of Christianity from the very first day until now has always been, you are welcome to be a part of this. And if you feel that you, you want to join, what's, what do you do? You ask the Lord to forgive you. It always begins with a confession of your need for grace, your need for his forgiveness in your life. And then he welcomes you in to the family. If you want to do that, just have dealings with God right now. Just pray. Say, Father, forgive me of my sin. I want to believe in your son, Jesus.